Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. She's on her deathbed and a family are arguing about who's getting the car and who's getting the furniture in the house and she's still alive and they're arguing about this and it's, it's just tr- so traumatic. Yeah, the day of the will reading... <laughs> I had to present the new will and uh, let them all know that uh, the will that the lawyer is reading out isn't the latest will. This one is. So suck it. (laughs) That was gold. Prologue. 
private investigator and entrepreneur Bill Edgar had a traumatic childhood and has found many ways to survive. His story includes childhood sexual assault, life on the streets and a stint in Brisbane's notorious Boggo Road Jail with some of Australia's worst criminals. He's a voice for the voiceless and has carved a unique position for himself as the Coffin Confessor, where he attends funerals on behalf of the deceased and tells their secrets from the grave. Bill has had thousands of requests from around the world for his services. It's a one-of-a-kind job, and as you'll discover, Bill is an extraordinary man. Bill, Edgar, it's great to talk to you. We're going to talk about your pretty extraordinary life that you've talked about in your book, The Coffin Confessor. But before we start, introduce yourself to our listeners. Who are you? Who am I? Uh, Yeah, look, I'm Bill Edgar and I am The Coffin Confessor. I've been known by a a few names by a few people. I guess, uh, yeah, I'm a private investigator. I have been for nearly 15 years. I guess uh, more details to come. And what we discover in the book, which we'll get into later, is that you have a real heart for standing up for people who are disenfranchised, you know, the battler. How does that reflect itself in the work that you do currently? Yeah, it's it's never changed. For some reason, I've always been that type of person to stand up for the battler, those that don't have a voice. And this is exactly the same thing. Standing up for, for those that are dying, it's a privilege in a way. But at the same time, it's it's not new to me, not at all. Well, how does that kind of heart for people who are, you know, disadvantaged and don't have a voice play out in your private investigation work? What kind of stuff do you focus on? Mainly it's debt related. So I investigate people's debts. Now, a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, look, you know, I'm being chased by a debt collector for a certain amount of money. I'll look at the legalities of that, uh, that debt and find out how the debt collectors came about it. And usually the debt collectors have purchased the debt as a repairable write-off from a financial institution. And if I find that they bought a $20,000 debt for $14, then I'll go back to them and I'll make sure my client doesn't pay them a cent. And do you find more often than not that there are cases where people shouldn't be paying the money? Oh, absolutely. There's thousands of people that shouldn't be paying their debts. Absolutely. I mean, if a debt collector can purchase a debt for, for 20 bucks and it was sold by a financial company, why didn't my clients have the same rights to purchase their debt for 20 bucks? Well, I don't get that. So why is a debt collector allowed to purchase a debt for 20 bucks but come after a client for 20, 30,000? And the coffin confessor, we've got to get to that. Now, a couple of years ago, it came out in the media to much interest that you had a really unique job. And in effect, you kind of created it for yourself. Tell us about what you do as a coffin confessor and how did you first get started? Yeah, so basically what happened is, uh, and I'll tell you now, it started as a joke. It was a joke. I told a dying man that I'd crash his funeral for him and let some truths fly. He took me up on that offer, and during his best mate uh, performing the eulogy, I'd uh, stand up and tell him to sit down, shut up, or F off, and open the letter and read aloud what was, you know, what was left behind. And what was the secret that he wanted to tell or his message to the people in the room at the time? Yeah, so he had a couple of messages. One message was to uh, out his best mate for trying to have sex with his wife. 
whilst he was on his deathbed. Now, he couldn't move. He was incapacitated, very weak, but he could see what was going on. His wife didn't take the uh, advances. She wanted him removed, but he just, he just kept coming, this bloke. And it wasn't nice. And he was no best mate, that's for sure. And the other thing was there was uh, three people at the funeral. Uh, Should they attend the funeral? They were to be asked to leave or escorted from the funeral because my uh, client hadn't seen him in 30 years. So why would they pay their respects now and not when he was alive? So obviously, you know, you've been doing more of this kind of work. What happened when it became public you know, it hit the media that you did this kind of stuff. Did you find you had a lot more people asking you to do it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, one show in the UK presented me with four and a half thousand requests and a lot of them were fun and, and type things and people just saying what they'd like at the funeral. Obviously, there was the, the few that were, were really heartfelt and they needed me. Obviously, I can't get to England yet. And, and I stay in touch with those people. They're still alive. They're still doing well. So, you know there's a chance I can get there, I will. But I mean, yes, the media's played a big part on it to get me a lot of work for sure. But then so is COVID. People are scared. They're worried. Do you have any people who want to confess to things like crimes or, you know, like deep, dark secrets that they don't want to take to their grave? Yeah. So this is something that uh, came across my desk in the early days is uh, when I first started, as I kept thinking about if someone was to confess to a to a serious crime, I have to report it. However, I came up with the idea that if they write down the crime, put it in an envelope and post it to me or give it to me and I post it to myself, then I will not know what the crime is until the day of the funeral. So I'll be just as surprised as everybody else and then I can report it. If that's going to bring closure to some people, great. If people are going to get upset that I'm holding a crime in an envelope and that person's going to yeah, you know, get away with it. I mean, these people are knocking on death's door. They haven't got long to go. So, you know, bear with it. So it's a pretty entrepreneurial thing you've done, but what people will discover from reading the book is you've been entrepreneurial really from a really young age and it was born from a pretty tough upbringing. You had a pretty tough childhood, including you were sexually abused by your maternal grandfather. And I thought it was really brave that you wrote about that because it really gave a sense of what children go through when they are abused. Are you able to tell us a bit about some of the stuff you talk about in the book and, and, you know, what was your childhood like in terms of, you know, your mom and how you grew up? Look, I've got to say that as far as being brave, courageous, strong coming out and and speaking about child abuse and what happened to me, I, I don't see that. I see it as something that it should be spoken about. More people should speak about it because that's the only way you're going to really stop it or, or open it. You know, I've got to say, predators aren't just out there in, the, in society in it. They're in the family. They're in your own family. So you've really got to watch, you know, your own family members. But the most important thing is to listen to your children. You know, the signs are there. You know, you just got to read, read them and know your child. I guess in my case, it was a bit different. It was a lot different, actually, because, you know, my mum knew uh, what was going on. So, therefore, there was no care or concern. I guess my childhood, uh, yeah, it would haunt your nightmares. And I guess, you know, it's one of those things that uh, I, 
I relive most days and I have to relive it because if I don't, then that's the day I'll probably end up going. So it's one of those things that it keeps me alive because I try to use all that bad energy and all that bad stuff that happened to me to keep going, to, you know, to keep living. And you said that your mum knew about the abuse, but you didn't actually find that out till later, did you? No, a lot later. Yeah, I, I had no idea until a lot later. And, um, you know, as my my mum and her sister, my auntie, they both knew and they were aware of what was happening. And it was, um, it, like, you know, that was heartbreaking in itself, just finding out that they knew. I guess the abuse is is horrid and it's horrific and, and you know, it's a scar. But I, I don't know if them knowing is a deeper scar, knowing that they could have helped me or done something but didn't and refused to. I mean, that's that's pretty pretty painful. And so for you, you spent some time on the streets and actually, you know, from what you describe in the book, it was actually a safer place for you. What were some of the ways that you survived on the street? Yeah, I definitely wasn't your average street kid, that's for sure. I guess it's it's one of those things, you know, when uh, you think to yourself, oh, imagine staying in a supermarket for the whole night with nobody knowing. Well, I actually did that because I could hide out in certain areas of the supermarket. And then back in the 80s, it was quite easy. I mean, I could sit in the middle of a clothes rack. Yeah, you know, I could watch the ladies shopping and, and I'd be in the middle of the clothes rack waiting for the store to close. And when it's closed, I had free reign of the whole shopping centre. It was perfect for me. And I did that quite a lot. And I never told anybody because I knew that other street kids or other people would do the same thing. So it was my sort of, it was my way of getting through life, you know, and doing what I could. I mean, there was, I stayed in movie theatres, bowling alleys, hotels, wherever I could. And how did you like make money to survive on the streets? You were definitely very resourceful. I'll say that readers will really find that out about you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess if you go to the entrepreneurial side of me, yes. I mean, I, you know, it started at the Southfield School when I was 13. I'd escort uh, older boys by boat over to Surface Paradise for $2 a person and then pick them up early in the morning and bring them back to school. They were boarders. They were living at the school, but they liked to party and drink and have a good night. And I was the chauffeur, so to speak. So I'd get $2 a person for that. And then I'd end up uh, sleeping in their beds. I called it bed hopping. So if there was a bed count or the doormaster would come around, he'd notice that somebody was in each bed. And I'd, I'd do that as well and jump into the bed and, you know, create a bit of a, uh, a wealth for myself, you know. And you mentioned that you attended the Southport School, which is a very prestigious school in Queensland. And reading the book, it kind of appeared that you were offered this scholarship kind of out of the blue. It was a full scholarship. You were a very smart kid, very good at sport. But how did you end up getting that scholarship? And tell us a bit about your experience at the Southport School, because that was another very significant event in your life. Yeah, it was. Look, I was the uh, the poorest kid and the dumbest kid put into the richest class of school and with the smartest children. At the age of 12, I was given a five-year fully funded scholarship to the Southport School after a gentleman saw me play soccer, he thought I was a, a talent and it'd be beneficial for the school. I attended the uh, Southport School from 1981 to 84, where I ran away. And that's when I lived on the streets. I confided in a teacher 
that I was being abused at home, only to be abused by him and another teacher at the school. My first month at the Southport School, I was, I was classed a charity case by a teacher. A teacher picked me up by my ears and ripped my ears from my head and, and blood was everywhere. And he kicked me and pushed me into a corner and he said, look, you're a charity case. You know, I don't teach idiots and especially idiots that don't pay to, for the privilege of coming to the Southport School. So that was my introduction to, to TSS, which is known as the Southport School. It was pretty horrific, but at the same time, I, I had nowhere else to go. I had to endure it and do what I did. I mean, it, it was a terrible place to be for me anyway. And there have been historical abuse allegations levelled at TSS. You've spoken out in the media about it and you actually support other students who have alleged that they have been abused too. What can you tell us about that? Uh, the most high-profile person to ever come forward and say he was abused at Southport School was uh, rugby league legend and former police officer Peter Jackson. Now, Peter Jackson came out and said he was sexually abused as a child at the Southport School. And in 1987, Peter took his own life. He couldn't live with it. It was then that I took up the case because I thought I was the only one. I didn't know Peter was abused. You know, I had no idea. So I took up the challenge and I kept going to the school and saying, look, you know, I was abused as well. I need help. What do we do? You know, let's get this out in the open. Let's bring these people to justice. And the school just closed down and said, no, you're a liar. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, and this went on for, for years, decades. It wasn't until Facebook came about that I started up a page called the Lost Boy of TSS Facebook page. And I put my case forward on that page. And then all of a sudden, other boys were coming forward and giving them their stories and accounts of what's going on. Teachers that still teach there today anonymously write me letters, you know, and now I've got to know them quite well. You know, I don't mention their names and they tell me what's going on at the school. And for years, they've been calling me a liar. Yet now there's over 133 boys that I've spoken to that were abused in some way, shape or form at the Southport School, either by a teacher, a staff member or another student. And you, you think your grandfather had something to do with you getting the scholarship there, don't you? I believe that I was targeted because, you know, as an investigator, I've got to go back and investigate my own life and, my, and how this all came about because I'm looking at it in a way that how does a 12-year-old boy without a birth certificate, different name, get accepted uh, amongst some of the most brainiest people, children in the country, and, and I get accepted there and it ends up being a pedophile's playground. So, yeah, I believe my grandfather knew people there that were pedophiles, and that's, you know, that's history for me. But, I mean, at least I got to the bottom of it, and I truly believe that, yes, I was targeted. It's one of those things that the dorms and the school and the teachers that did all this that I've exposed, and I'm publicly exposing them on, on social media, not one of them. In, in uh, 18 years or even you know, 35 years that I've been going on, not one of them have ever come out and defended themselves. Not once. And you mentioned before that you were known by a different name. Tell us a bit about that story. So my mother uh, basically didn't, she didn't really like me because I looked like my father, I acted like my father, and uh, he was a criminal. He wasn't a very nice person. Whatever you think about, you know about the whiskey a go go, put it out of your mind because I'm telling you, it's not what you think. My old man was known as the Irishman. He's you know, very notorious. He was sent to Bogger Road. He bit James Finch's ear off. 
he taunted Stuart, you know, so he knows a lot about what went on back then. He unfortunately is dead now, but I had the same name as my father and my mum hated that. And so she changed my name to my middle name, which was Scott and her maiden name, which was Robinson. So I became Scott Robinson. And I had no idea who I was until I was uh, about 17 when I went for my car license. I had no idea. You mentioned the Whiskey A Go-Go nightclub bombing. Just tell us a bit about that, what you know for the listeners who may not be aware of that. Yeah, so for, for decades again, I've been knocking on the door of uh, certain legal departments and, and uh, letting them know that, uh, you know, they're missing one factor of the Whiskey A Go-Go, and that is that uh, Billy Edgar, called the Irishman from Broadmeadows in Victoria, was actually sent to Sydney to collect money. And he became well known for collecting money and extorting money. And he was sent to the Gold Coast to collect money from nightclubs. However, he ended up getting arrested at the beer garden in surface for uh, extortion. And it was there that he came across Stuart and Finch in Bogger Road in 1973. And it was uh, Stuart that you know, told the old man that they'd been working for the police and that the Whiskey A Go-Go was, you know, the owner was in trouble. He was going to uh, do something with the club. However, what they didn't realise is that the club wasn't in his hands anyway. Is it, the insurance money wasn't going to go to him. So the police and everybody else that arranged all this, it wasn't, uh, they were never going to get the money. They just didn't know. It wasn't, it wasn't planned carefully enough. And at the end of the day, there's people today that know that Finch and Stewart, whilst they bombed the Whiskey Go-Go, what you don't know is they did it earlier than they were supposed to because they were told to do it at a certain time, but they got scared. And so they bombed it earlier. And that's where, the, where everything went to shit. Yeah, there's a lot of information out there about that Whiskey Go-Go bombing. And, and uh, I read a book a few years ago that was quite thorough about it. But, yeah, there's plenty of information for listeners to go and look at. But as you said, there's a bit more to the story. Uh, there's always a bit more. I mean, everybody's got something to say about something. It's just that era, I guess, of the old man being a uh, standover man and, and everybody feared the Irishman. And when he came to the coast and when he came to Brisbane, I mean, yeah, he did some terrible stuff. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Did you ever meet your birth father, Bill? Well, I was with him up until I was probably three, four years of age. I... (laughs) I recall a man coming to the school when I was at primary school, at Surface Paradise Primary School, standing at the gate and calling me over. I, I, you know, I remember him patting me on the head and he says, be good for your mother. You know, and that was it. That, that's all I ever remember of him. I, got, I get told a lot of stories about him. I get letters all the time about him. He, you know, and, and the more I find out, the more I, uh, I distance myself from, from a man like him. I mean, we couldn't be more separate, although I ended up in jail, but as far as it goes, I, I couldn't, uh, yeah, I was never a bully or an intimidator or anybody like that, but, yeah, unfortunately he was. You went to Bogo Road Jail yourself and I actually found your descriptions of that in the book just really quite terrifying and, and, and it gave a real insight into prison life back then and you were quite young when you went. Tell us a bit about your time there. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was on the streets. I was uh, 17. I'd just turned 17. And I got done for um, demanding property with menaces. So I, I was asking for something, the bloke wouldn't give it to me. So I kept asking for it and it ended up being demanding property with menaces. But when I went to court, the, the police took me to court. The judge decided that it's best that I go to jail because I never had a home and nowhere to live, no, you know, nothing. So the judge said, well, you're 17 and a 17 year old's a, an adult in Queensland. So you're going to jail for six months and you'll you know, learn to be a better person. And yeah, that's where he sent me at 17. And I ended up in Bogoro jail with some of the most notorious people you'd ever meet. They, they frighten you. They, they, they haunt your nightmares, some of these people. Unfortunately, they put me into a yard with those particular people that hurt children. And that wasn't... Uh, a very smart thing to do because they knew what I'd gone through. I told them. So, yeah. Who were some of the pretty hardcore people you were doing time with? Oh, look, there's a variety of all different types. But, I mean, if, if you get to the nitty-gritty of the people that I actually confronted and, and couldn't stand and ended up just bashing out of sheer hate, it was um, Barry Watts, the Shani King murderer. Ray Garland, who was just a rapist. He'd just rape everybody and anybody he saw. He didn't care. And I knew it was either me or him. And he didn't even look at me. (laughs) But I knew for some reason I just knew, you know, and I just, I I couldn't help myself. I just hated people that rape people. And, and, you know, and I was a kid, but I was was a tough kid. But I tell you what, that that place, it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) I've been watching... um the prison series by Jimmy McGovern called Time and it, mm. it's a statement on the brutality of the prison system but also I've seen other series is it pretty fair to say that you've got to like lash out before you get beaten to kind of stand your ground in jail I don't know about now but back then as I describe in the book when you walk into a room of 250 men or even 50 men at a dining room you don't know where to sit and you just rock up at an empty seat if someone tells you to F off or, you know, you can't sit there and you, you walk away, then they think you're easy because you haven't done anything. However, if you just pull the chair out and sit down and start eating, they'll bash you anyway because you haven't done what. So you're sort of stuck. In my instance, I, I just pulled the chair out and sat down. I, did, I suffered what came. 
And uh, what came was a bit of a, a beating and, you know, I lost my food and all that. But I wasn't hungry anyway. I, I, I was just there because you had to be there. You know, I'd already thrown up in my mouth so many times. I was full. And you found ways to kind of make your mark in jail and, you you know, you had a bit of a business in there because we know <laughs> you're an entrepreneur. Tell us about the business that you had. You know, uh, you were making a bit of cash, weren't you? <laughs> Yeah, there's the entrepreneurial side of Bill. Yeah, I guess it's the funniest thing because I seem to just create jobs everywhere I go. I can't work for anybody, so I just create things. And it's like freedom from debt collectors, how I created that. The Coffin Confessor, I created that. And in Bogger Road, I created a job called The Runner. Now, because I was young, I got away with a lot of stuff like uh, freedom from the jail. So I could run from one jail to two jail. Now, Brisbane jail was separated with the, the old jail being number two and the new one being number one. And um, it was one of those things that uh, prisoners from each jail, I used to run messages between them and I'd get paid to do that. And it could be, it wasn't money. It was in like tins of Milo, shoes, coffee, whatever it was, which became quite, you know, more than money. It was great. It was good trading. And now and then there was drugs and notes and letters to to transport between prisoners. And uh, if you get stopped, you had to swallow the drugs. And uh, <laughs> it became a bit of a hard, a hard slog in the end. But I was lucky to be able to get out of it as well. But it was a good job. Yeah, we've spoken to people who done prison time before and one of them told us that coffee is a really important commodity in jail like you've got and good coffee so it's like if you've got that Mm. you you kind of you know you're in good standing but what what's the kind of hierarchy of stuff to have that's worth you know money in jail the possession oh you know obviously drugs is the number one (laughs) but um in my my travels and, and this is in the 80s I mean I'm talking a fair while ago now but I mean back then uh, a good pair of sand shoes was probably the best. And then you've got tins of Milo, which was good, Tim Tams, things like that. As for a uh, commodity uh, to really get yourself somewhere, it would be, uh, yeah, sand shoes, a good pair of sand shoes and tobacco uh, and good tobacco, or even back then they were called tailor-mates, you know, if you had you know, Winfield Red or Blue or something like that. How long did you spend in Bogo Road? Uh <sighs> Probably a year all up, but it was sort of separated with three months on, uh, you know, I was on remand for three months, then I skipped, didn't go to court once, and then I got another two months, and then I got six months for a uh, break and enter because I, I attacked a, uh, a church. I actually went to a priest and told a priest what was happening to me at a church on Isla Capri on the Gold Coast, and I said, look, I'm being abused at the Southport School. His son was going to the Southport School too. He said to me to... Um, best just to let it lie. Don't, don't tell anybody because they're not going to believe me and it's not worth saying anything. So yeah, I broke into his church and vandaled it and told God I hated him and I never want to speak to him again. And there is no God. And yeah. And you dedicate your book to Lara. Now, Lara is your wife and you and Lara have been together for a really long time. And I found that a beautiful part of the book. She stuck with you and she gave you good advice when you were doing jail time. Can you tell us about Lara? Oh, I don't know. What can you talk about an angel? I mean, someone that came into my life, uh, she's a year younger than me. She was, you know, I, I met Lara at the Southport School, at State School, where she was at. You know, I just, I found a, a clothesline with school uniform hanging off it. I grabbed the school uniform and I entered this school, this state school. And 
started schooling without them even knowing I wasn't there. I was a street kid. So, and I ran into this young girl who uh, she says from the moment she saw me, she fell in love with me. But I believe the moment she saw me or I saw her, she saved my life. She's just remarkable. I mean, she'd never allowed me once to blame myself for what happened to me. She's always been there. And, and I was a ship provider when we first started out. I was a ship provider. She was the best. I was just shocked. And I, I'd do everything I could to make money, you know, like cheat, steal, whatever I could. And she was the opposite. She'd say, no, you've just got to get work and keep working and you've got the family. And, you know, I was oh, an incredible person, you know. So, yeah, we met uh, uh, April, 13th of April, 1985. So, yeah, we've been together since then. And defying the odds, you know, of, of what happened to you in your childhood and, and your teen years, you've built a really wonderful life together. You bought a house. Lara stuck by you. You know, how did you achieve all that? Yeah, I, look, I wouldn't have achieved it without her. I mean, Lara is, uh, you hear people hoard things. Uh, Lara hoards money. She, she, she'd put $20 away here and $10 away there and, uh, you know, and it wasn't until I was in my 30s and I said, you know, we should really buy a house. We need to buy a house, but we, we need a good deposit. And back then the government was giving $7,000 grant and we needed another, I don't know, I think it was 15, 17,000 or something or even more. And uh, Lara surprised me and said she'd saved all that up through our lifetime. You know, nearly $20,000 she'd saved. And I had no idea. And she could have taken that money anytime and run away and done her own thing. I mean, you know, it was just, yeah, she, she believed in me, you know, and it's something that I'm indebted to her for my whole life is I'll, I will always be indebted to her. And people say to me, you know, how haven't you killed yourself? How are you still here? And the one truth is if I die for Lara, why wouldn't I live for her? And how did things end up with your mum after you found out that she knew about the abuse that her father was doing to you, what was your relationship like after that? Because it was already, already tense. Mm. Yeah, I, look, my mother's dead to me. Um, she has been for a long time now. So is my auntie, so is a few other members of the family that uh, I, I believe now who knew what was going on. They're basically dead to me. I, I don't have any care or concern for those. It's a bit like when I crash a funeral. I'm, I'm all there for the uh, for the person in the coffin. Anybody left behind, I have no care or concern for. So yeah, in regards to my family, uh, outside my immediate family, I have no one. And you've got kids, haven't you? You and Lara. Oh yeah, we got adult children now. We've got three three point five grandchildren. And uh, that's that's my whole life. Yeah, absolutely. So we live in a beautiful uh, part of the world now. We're on uh, you know, acreage. I've got a nice farm, a little hobby farm, and we sit back here and just enjoy life. And back to your incredible job as a coffin confessor, can you share with us a couple of memorable, I'm sure they're all memorable, but really memorable instances where you've, you know, of cases of where you've helped someone to, you know, say something from beyond the grave? I, look, I've got to say, one of the most memorable and the, the best would have to be the wheel reading that I've crashed. And it's where a lady was, oh, no, I was with her. She's, she's on her deathbed. And a family are arguing about who's getting the car and who's getting the furniture in the house. And she's still alive. And they're arguing about this. And it's, it's just tr so traumatic. So we arranged a, uh, a new will. 
so she had to be sound of mind. She had to have a barrister and a lawyer and everything to do this new will. Yeah, the day of the will reading, <laughs> I had to present the new will and uh, let them all know that uh, the will that the lawyer is reading out isn't the latest will. This one is. So suck it. <laughs> that was gold. How did that go down with the family? Yeah, they all objected and they yelled and screamed and carried on. But the lawyer knows once you present a new will, that new will has to be looked at and has to be investigated. So it didn't matter what the family was doing or the lawyer. You know, at the end of the day, that will had to stay in play and it did. So, you know, I've got to say that's probably the most satisfying one I've done as far as the funeral goes. I've got to say there's a, there's a lady uh, happily married to her husband, beautiful, beautiful family, everything about him is nice. She has a lifelong friend who they used to go out together and hiking and do all these things as adventure. And uh, during the funeral, I had to let her best friend know that not only was she, she loved her best friend, but she was truly in love with her and would have had a relationship with her. And the heartfelt thing about that is the other lady left behind said the same thing, exactly the same thing. They just never told each other. And her husband, he didn't mind either. He, he thought, yeah, well, you know, it's just one of those things. So it's very sad that we can't actually say what we really want to say when we're alive, isn't it? Well, that leads me to this question. What's doing the Coffin Confessor gig taught you about death and about living life? Well, what it's taught me is that I love animals even more than people. Um, I guess you've got to live life to the fullest, absolutely. You know, you've got to just live every day to the fullest, do what you can. Uh, whatever it is, anything that you want to do for you, you've just got to go and do. And no regrets. I mean, you know, just, just go and do it. You know, it's one of those things you've just got to go and do. I guess the other thing that I have learned is that every person on this planet has a skeleton in the closet it's just up to you whether you want to let it out or not and don't shoot the messenger because that's all I am I'm just the messenger and how's things been since the book was released I mean it must be a bit nerve-wracking putting everything out there you know on paper for for people to read yeah I didn't expect the amount of people that have come forward and told me that they were abused I didn't expect that and especially the men, like it's okay because you hear uh, a lot of women and the Me Too movement, women, you know, they, they freely come out and say what's happening to them because they're not scared. Men, we seem to be, we fear fear and, and we fear people knowing about us and we fear, oh, it could be weak that, oh, he was abused. How weak is that? You know what? It's not weak. I was a child. It wasn't my fault and I won't accept the, you know, the blame. But what I will do, is that if you ever confront me face-to-face -face and you say that I'm a weak prick because I've, I've said I was abused or sexually abused at home and at the South Pole School, then you better run or, or you know, you better be good. <laughs> and what is it that you think men need more of to be able to talk more freely about being abused or, you know, family violence uh, when they were growing up? What, what is it that we need to build around men for this? We need more men to speak out. That's the, that's the most important part because it, I've seen it firsthand of all these charities and people doing fun runs and pushing wheelbarrows and lawnmowers and all this crap that the men are doing, which is, okay, it's good. And people condemn me because I'm saying it's crap. But the crap part that I'm saying is that come out and tell us who abused you. What happened to you? Who was it? Name them, shame them. Who cares? 
I do that every day. You know, and, you know it's, in, it's in the book. It's on uh, the Lost Boy of TSS Facebook page. I'll name and shame anybody that ever attacked me, abused me and hurt me. Absolutely. And we need the men to be able to do that. Now, it's okay that you might be in a charity and you might be holding an event for, for men or Beyond Blue or anything else. But what happened to you? Don't just say, oh, yeah, we're abused or this is for men who are abused. Get their stories out there. Really get their stories out there. Tell us what happened. Name the people. If it was your dad, your brother, your uncle, name them. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel weak. Just do it. Did you get any counselling, Bill, to, you know, process through what happened to you or have you kind of worked through it yourself through the kind of work you're doing? Uh, look, I've always done it myself because after confessing to what happened to me at, you know, at home to teachers at the Southport School, I, I trust nobody. I, I don't have a, you know, I, I don't even have a friend in my life. I have associates and I have thousands of them, but I don't, uh, I don't trust. I have, I, I just don't trust anybody and I have issues with that. So I couldn't go to a counsellor. However, Last year, I've got lawyers that have been working against the Southport School for ages, for years, but the Southport School just will not do anything. They don't reply to them. They do nothing. They just keep putting it off or fogging it off. But I had to attend a counsellor, you know, just, you know, for the courts and everything. And I went there and, it, I mean, the psychologist just said, look, he said, I've seen some pretty effed up people in the world, but, mate, you got it in spades. And how, you, how you're even sitting in my office, I, I don't understand, but you need to get on to this drug, this drug. I mean, there was like nine drugs the guy was telling me, and I, I've never taken you know, drugs like that in my life, and I wouldn't, you know. So I've, I've always done it myself. It's like anything. It's like when people say, call the police. No, you know what? I'll handle it myself. I'll do everything myself. Bill, you're an extraordinary person, and I can't tell you enough how reading your book I was crying, I was like smiling in bits. It was really a beautiful book, but, very, you know, a very sad book in a lot of parts. But, you know, I really encourage people to read it. So thanks for your time today. Oh, not a problem at all. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you've described it like that, and a lot of people do. Some people even describe it as a bit of a love story, you know. It's got all different genres and everything about, about the book, and I'm really excited the way it's going. So, you know, thank you so much for your time and having me, and uh, I hope uh, we speak again soon. Thanks to our guest, Bill Edgar. His book, The Coffin Confessor, is published by Penguin. You can buy the book through our bookshop at australiantruecrimepodcast.com. If you've been affected by anything discussed on this episode, you can find Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au. Blue Knot Foundation supports people who have experienced childhood trauma. Contact 1300 657 380 or bluenot.org.au. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.